0: Hey, Stop and City Church, Jason here again, welcoming you to the podcast. Uh, this week, we are continuing our walk into the book of Romans, and you'll hear more about that in a bit. But before we get to that, I want to remind you about family dedication coming up on Sunday, October 29th. Uh, this is a chance for families of all kinds to go on the record in our gatherings, recognizing the gift of the children that they are stewarding. Uh, these kids are a gift from God, and we want to name that. We also want to name our commitment to helping these kids know the love of God and uh, to recognize the opportunity to know and follow jesus and so for families that want to recognize that and commit to that uh, you'll have a chance soon to sign up for now you can save the date it's a good date for the rest of us though too for all of us who might be in the gathering uh, to show up and recognize that we're a part of that story that we're here to support these families and walk with them whether it's like volunteering for kids ministry or walking with parents uh, we want to be the kind of church that walks with families really well so that's coming up uh, keep an eye out for that Uh, As always, if you want to support Salton City Church financially, it makes a huge difference. Uh, Thank you for doing that. Uh, We don't take it lightly, and we couldn't do this without you. And so if you want to give, just go to SouthlandCityChurch.com slash give. You can make a one-time gift, or you can set up a recurring donation. And uh, everything you give uh, helps us be who we are and do what we are called to do. Uh, Now let's turn to the next week in our teaching on Romans. Uh, if you're listening to this after the fact or not in the area, you might not know, uh, but uh, Notre Dame and Ohio State just had a game the night before, and it was a very uh, emotional experience for a lot of South Bend people, uh, including me, and you'll hear that at the beginning of the teaching. Uh, but that being said, we hope that this helps you work, work further into the Book of Romans that we are studying together in this season. Thank you, Katie. Uh, good morning. Like Katie said, people call me Jay. Uh, my name is Jason, but I'll know we're friends if you call me Jay. Uh, We're honored that you're here. Uh, Later in our gathering, we'll come to what is really kind of the centerpiece of our practice, which is the Eucharist. Uh, This is the meal that Jesus gives us to share with one another, to welcome one another in the name of Jesus. It can be a place of healing, of love, of sustenance, of meeting God and meeting one another. And I feel like you might share with me the feeling that today we need that because of last night's game. (laughs) I um, had the dubious privilege of attending the game with my Ohio State fan of a father, thinking that he would be disabused of his wrong ways at that game, and until about one second before the end of the game, I thought that was going to happen, and then, like, right in front of me, I watched us put 10 guys in the field when we could have had 11 and lose the game. So anyway, here we are. Let's have church. Uh, The Eucharist will be good for all of us today. Uh, In all seriousness, this meal is sacred for us, and it meets our whole humanity, and you are welcome to bring your whole humanity to it, whatever you're feeling, whatever story you've walked in here with today. Uh, The Eucharist for us is a place where anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus is radically welcome here. And so that's the only question for you is if you wanna be at the table with Jesus, and it could be that you wanna be there even though you're not sure what you think about him entirely or what you believe today, or or maybe you're not proud of the life that you've lived in the last week, or maybe you are. It doesn't really matter. If you wanna be at the table with Jesus, Uh, it is our sacred honor to welcome you there in his name and so when we get to that point it's always nice to know how we approach in case you haven't been with us for that before so a little later in the gathering uh, it'll be really obvious that this is happening and i'm going to invite those who are going to serve you to come join me up here and i'll serve them and then when that's happened they'll go take their places and they'll be at these three tables in the corners on the main level we'll have somebody upstairs in the mezzanine And uh, then when they're in their place, if you like, you're just welcome to get up out of your seat to go to one of those tables. And when you get there, you can simply hold out your hand. You don't have to take anything at Jesus's table because he freely gives. And when you hold out your hand, somebody's going to put a piece of bread in your hand. It's gluten-free, nut-free, dairy-free, and soy-free. And we kind of laugh at that. But in all seriousness, that's actually very serious for us because... We don't feel like you ought to be relegated to some other table if you have some dietary needs. The table's for everyone, and we want everyone there. And so they'll put a piece of bread in your hand and remind you the body of Christ broken for you. Now hold on to that for a moment. Don't eat it quite yet. Step over, and somebody will hold out a cup. And in the cup is grape juice, but they'll remind you of the blood of Christ shed for you and you can take the bread and dip it in the cup and then take and eat that and that'll be our practice. Uh, If for some reason you're unable to make your way to the table but you would like to be a part of this, we got you covered, Uh, you can remain at your seat and then once the lines have wrapped up, if you can just raise a hand or if you're unable just have somebody next to you raise a hand for you and our team will be on the lookout and then they'll bring those elements to you out of your seat and that'll be our practice uh, in a bit. But before we get there, uh, first, uh, a story. A few years ago, I was uh, in a regular kind of workout rhythm at this gym that I was at. And I decided to like add something new to my rhythm. And it's hard for me to do it mentally, spiritually, emotionally, because it required me doing something I don't believe in, which is running. (laughs) I'm just like not a runner, never been a runner. I don't get it. I don't understand how you're not bored out of your mind when you do it. My legs don't like it. It's just not my thing. But I thought I should try to do it because it seems like everybody who's fit likes to run. And so my idea was, because I think treadmills are just the most asinine inventions in the history of the world, and they're just so weird and boring to me, I thought the way that I will trick myself into being a runner is I'll do like a couple of laps outside the building in the parking lot around this place where the gym was. And so this is my plan, and the first day I go out there, I'm brave, I'm like bold, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to take a new step in life. And as I'm running around the building, I get physically attacked by a goose, did you know that geese will actually attack you? Okay, so you don't need me to show you this image to prove my point, but this is some poor high school golfer that was being attacked by a goose. I found this image online. I'm running along, I don't realize it, but I don't see it coming either because the goose comes at me from behind. So all I know is there are like talons striking my head and the sound of these massive flapping wings, it scares the something out of me. You know what I'm saying? Like, the best part of it was uh, this is happening in front of the windows of the gym where the treadmill line is. (laughs) So all those regular runners on the treadmill see me getting attacked by this goose. It's very alarming to me. I go back in the gym after recovering myself a bit. And then from those same windows, I'm looking out. And what I realize is there were these big uh, planters at this like retail strip and this mama and papa goose had made a nest there and their babies were in that. And this was a a dad goose doing his protective job to defend what was precious for him, really to defend the very reason of his existence, really, right, which is to procreate and make more of those things. I mean, this was a papa goose doing exactly what he was meant to do, put up a fight to defend something that was precious for him and mama goose right there, right? I tell you that story because uh, it'll connect a little bit later in what we're going to talk about today, but it reminds us that um, often w- when, when there's an attack made or when there's a fight that's shown, it's because something really important is at stake. Something vital, something precious, something sacred. When you, when you sense somebody or something going on the defensive, going on the attack even, it might be because something really, really precious is at stake. And I think you're going to get a taste of that today in this letter that we we're looking at called Romans. So Romans uh, is something that we just dove into a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be in it for a while. It's a letter written uh, roughly like two or three decades after Jesus. Uh, the writer of it is probably writing from modern day, uh, like Greece or Turkey, I actually forget which one now. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Anyway, uh, but he's writing to a collection of the followers of Jesus in the city of Rome. He's never met them before, but he's sending this letter ahead of him, hoping that later he'll get to visit them. And one thing that we noted in the previous teaching is that these followers of Jesus in Rome are probably undergoing something very peculiar, which goes back to the fact that when the Jesus movement first started, it was uh, almost entirely Jewish followers of Jesus, Jesus himself being Jewish and starting among his people. Right. Uh, But then over time, uh, the Christian movement becomes both Jewish believers and Gentile believers and Jewish people and Gentile people are very, very different. They have different moral sensibilities, different cultural backgrounds, different ethnic practice. Like the the whole world of a Jewish believer of Jesus is different than the Gentile believer in Jesus. But in the church, they're somehow coming together. In Rome, it's likely that at the beginning of that church, it was majority Jewish followers of Jesus, and they were making room for these Gentile believers to be a part of what they were doing. But then the emperor expels the Jews from Rome. And so for a period of time before that emperor dies, the Jewish followers of Jesus are nowhere near Rome. And it's all Gentile believers of Jesus. And then the, the emperor dies, the edict expires, and these Jewish believers come back and find themselves reentering a, a place where they had sort of run the show, but now the Gentile believer seems to be running the show. And it's just fraught with all of these very human tensions of different moral sensibilities and different preferences and different backgrounds and different power struggles that are shaping the life of the church. And even though that's a very ancient situation I just described, it's just a very human situation that I've described. And it applies to church, and it applies to families, and it applies to communities. Anytime we're trying to figure out how are we going to put ourselves together with one another across these seemingly impossible lines of difference. And this is one of the reasons that we want to study Romans. Uh, Paul, the author of this letter, um, he had had an experience. And we're going to keep coming back to this because I know not any of you, but other people don't attend church every week. So I have to keep going back to it to like let you know where we were so we can go forward together. And so anyway, I want to remind you of this too, that Paul had this experience that shaped all of this for him. Paul had been a good Jewish man, not a follower of Jesus. And he saw this Jesus movement as a problem for God's people. It was corrupting God's people. It was threatening their allegiance to God. And so he, in a righteous kind of zeal, was going around the ancient world persecuting the church, trying to stamp this thing out. And then in the middle of that pursuit on the road to Damascus, he has this mystical encounter with the resurrected Christ who says, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And in one, in one voice, in one moment, things are fused together for Paul that had been divided. In one moment, his God, the voice of God, is fused with the resurrected Christ in a way that he can no longer deny that somehow in the body of that man on that cross, God was present. So there's a, a fusion happening there where he had divided things, but also not just between the God that he knew and the Christ that he had rejected, but also between all of that and these people that he had rejected, all of that's fused together. And from that fusion, a powerful new energy is unleashed in the world, creating an uncommon community. And Paul goes from being the persecutor of that community to the leader of it, to the uh, living at the vanguard of it, bringing it back together. So that's the background on Paul. And that's why he's moving around the ancient world, planting churches and raising up leaders and writing letters. And we're in one of those letters in the book of Romans. Now, let me um, take you back to some of the texts that we've already heard to just remind you of the texture of Paul's actual writing, like the things that he's actually saying. So right out of the gate in the letter, Paul writes to these people. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He says, my entire life now belongs to this thing that I had rejected. And he says, I'm called to be an apostle. That's his way of saying, I got this directly from that encounter. I'm sent firsthand. I didn't hear about this second hand. That's what apostle means from here. And then set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God. A reminder, gospel here, the word that he's using in the Greek is him borrowing from the Roman Empire at a time when the Roman Empire would send out a gospel when a new emperor was born or declare a gospel when they had conquered a land as a way of saying our good news as an empire is that when we bring our weapons and subjugate your people, we've brought a certain kind of peace. And Paul uses that gospel word Uh, Subversively, he grabs it and turns it to say, no, I also have a word about an empire or a kingdom, but it's one that's not forged through weapons of violence, but through love and sacrifice. It's a a counterclaim about what real power is and about how we build the real world that we want. So that's a lot packed into that first sentence from Paul when he opens the letter. Uh, Next slide. Uh, A little later, he addresses the people he's writing to, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And I said uh, when we looked at this before, let's just make this personal for a moment. For all in South Bend and for all who are listening on the podcast who are loved by God, which is all of you, you know that, right? And called to be God's holy people, deemed eligible for the presence and spirit of God. To all of you whom God has looked at and said, I want to live my life through you and in you. That, that's what it is to be God's holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how Paul gets this uh, whole thing started. Let's go. Let's just kind of peek a little bit further, shall we? We've already been that part of the text. Let's keep going here. He says to them, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. That's high praise, right? I mean, that's a big encouragement. Uh, I thank God for you because your faith is being reported. Something happening among you is so good and beautiful and noteworthy that word is spreading all around about it. A little later he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not, I'm not gonna let this strange gospel about a man who was crucified um, shame me. I'm gonna be proud of it because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. A uh, quick note on that word salvation. Uh, it's very fitting and appropriate linguistically to swap out the word healing there if salvation's a hard word for you. And a salvation is a word that has a lot of um, religious baggage for some people, but I take this from people who know Greek a lot better than me that the actual word there, we'll do more work on this, but "healing" is really appropriate there too. This gospel brings healing. This gospel puts things back together, not just in us, but between us. Uh, And it's for everyone who trusts it. It's gonna have that effect for you. So you can get like more and more like, I think, excited about where this letter is going and what it might be doing, right? Let's like keep peeking a little bit further. We go on a little bit further here. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Oh, okay. I feel like when I get to this point in the letter, I'm like, oh, that, that escalated quickly, right? You know, uh, a little further, next slide. Uh, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. All right. A little further. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Oh, just got very personal. Paul just like took this thing and turned it. A second ago, he was telling us that he was telling, like hearing around the world that our faith is a beacon of light. And now he seems to have a different opinion of us. This is very confusing, right? Uh, Next line. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. I don't know how you feel about that. As I just read the letter and I'm honest about my reactions, I all of a sudden start to feel like Paul is that really weird uncle of yours who offers completely unsolicited, very prejudicial views about other people at Thanksgiving dinner. You know the guy I'm talking about, right? Don't point him out if he's here, but like, you know what I'm talking Just out of nowhere. It's like your Uber driver. You ever have an Uber driver offer very, very uncomfortable opinions? You've been there. That's kind of, all of a sudden, I feel that way with Paul. Like, out of nowhere, he's gone from like, like expansive vision of hope and flattery for these people to some very, very, very strange kind of negative things. This is all like in the first chapter into, uh, of Romans. Now, what I want to remind you of at this point is what we said already, which is when you read what Paul writes in Romans, it's important that you pay attention to not just what is he saying, but what is he doing? Not just what is he saying, but what is he doing? And now I'm going to follow a line of interpretation that's um, pretty widely held among scholars. And it's going to shape our approach for the next few weeks here. Uh, One scholar, for example, a guy named Douglas Campbell, a Testament scholar, um, agreeing with many other scholars, says, um, Paul's doing something in the first few chapters here to, um, to attack and defend something. Paul's writing this letter because he's concerned that there's a threat that's going to be leveraged against the church and against like the true message of the church. And that he's making some very strange kind of rhetorical moves in the first three chapters that are his way of setting up that defense or that attack even to, to begin to create a protective sort of energy around the thing that, that matters to him. So what I'm gonna do now that is a little unorthodox is rather than teach Romans from chapter one to chapter 16 in order, we're actually gonna leap forward for the next several weeks and later, we're gonna come back to the first few chapters. And again, this theory actually comes from the scholar named Douglas Campbell that this is a better way to understand Romans. He says, don't spend so much energy paying attention to the, the attack, to the rhetorical maneuvers that he's making. Start with what is he protecting? Like what is the precious thing that matters so much to Paul that he would write this expansively? What is the thing that he's protecting? And then you can go back and understand the nature of the protection. So the idea here is that, like chapters one through three, is Paul is kind of setting up this protection, this defense, this attack. And then in the middle of the letter, you actually get the heart of the thing that matters so much to him, that is so sacred, so vulnerable, so precious, that he would go on that kind of attack to protect it. So starting now and going forward for a few weeks, I wanna turn to the middle of Romans chapters five through eight and help us begin to hear the thing that seems to be so important to Paul that he's gotta offer these rhetorical maneuvers earlier in the letter to protect it. Everybody tracking with me? Makes sense, good. Okay, so let me like look forward now to chapter five. I'm gonna look at verse one and verses six through 11 with you. I wanna begin today to just begin to give you a sense of what it is that Paul thinks is so important that he's gotta protect it. This is the beginning of chapter five. Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. Uh, You can put the word trust in there, if that helps you. Through whom we have gained access by trust into this grace in which we now stand. Let me go a little further, Uh, next slide. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person shall we be saved or healed through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Um, That's just the beginning of chapter 5, and I'm trying to tell you that 5 through 8 are Paul unpacking this big, beautiful thing that he is protecting that's going to be threatened. It seems that, like, for Paul the starting point of of this precious gift that he trusts and is trying to share and protect is this expansive capacity in God to forgive and reconcile that Paul has discovered, believes in, and is trying to share with others this big, basic, beautiful idea that God has taken it upon God's self to have us in a reconciled relationship where nothing that you have done nothing I have done, or nothing that's happened to you, or nothing that's been said about you, that nothing about you in any way is somehow going to overcome God's capacity and desire to be with you, to be right with you, to be reconciled to you. Like this, this is the starting point of the thing that Paul seems to be really passionate about protecting. Now if you think about Paul's experience that I've already explained to you, it makes sense to me that he would believe this so deeply. I don't think this is theoretical for him. On the road to Damascus, when Paul had been out there persecuting God's own people, because he thought he had the world so neatly divided between who was in and who was out and who was worthy and who was unworthy and who God's people were and who God's people weren't, he thought he had it all right and he had it all wrong. It's almost like in one moment, two things happened. One, he discovered he's like never been more wrong, right? Like, I don't know if you can get more wrong than that. What is actually of God, filled with the presence of God, he's been calling evil and trying to kill. Quite literally, I don't know if you can get more wrong than that, right? So in that moment, it seems very clear to him like he's never been more wrong, and yet somehow, simultaneously, he discovers he's never been more loved. He's never been more welcome with God. He's never been more embraced. He's never been more desired by God. This is a moment of divine pursuit where God comes after Paul only to include Paul, only to call Paul, only to want Paul to be a part of what God is doing in the world. In one moment, he gets these two big, completely contradictory ideas. He's never been more wrong, and he's never been more loved, embraced, desired. And so, of course, he would believe in his bones and want to share with other people the same strange experience. Uh, Experience is an important word here, and I think it's one that, depending on your religious background, might feel a little uh, squishy. Or um, uncertain or unreliable, but I think this is really important. I had a, a professor who said this very simple thing, and yet when he said it, it just rocked me uh, because of the way I was working through my own interaction with Scripture. It's just simply this my prof said, Hey, you do know that experience preceded every word of Scripture, like everything written in that book was first like, seen, felt, lived, experienced by these people. And then, after it enters their senses, they begin to make sense of it. After they experience it, they work it out in these pages. Paul had experienced it, and then in all of his letters, you can hear him working it out for himself and for others. And I say all that because if the thing that... Paul is trying to protect so fiercely begins with the idea of radical inclusion and embrace. Of utter forgiveness and reconciliation. If that's the thing that he's trying to start with that's so precious to him, then it's important for us to not just have thoughts about it, but to trust our experience of it. If we're going to take this letter seriously, as the people in South Bend loved by God, called to be God's holy people right here, it might begin for us too with, trusting our experience of inclusion, of embrace. If you've ever had a moment in your life where you knew that you've never been so wrong, but you've also never been so loved, if you've ever had a taste of that, just a hint of that, I'm trying to tell you, like, I think you ought to trust that. You gotta remember what it felt like in your body, in your emotions, and believe that if Paul knows what he's talking about, if if he's right, if this is true, And when you tasted it, you were experiencing something right at the heart of the gospel, right at the heart of the good news. Now, in my experience, like walking with people in faith and life and church, when we begin talking about like the expansiveness of God's grace, the unlimited nature of God's love, the ways that you can't exhaust it or outrun it, when we begin talking about that, people get a little bit uncomfortable. And it's like we have all of these... um, scripts in our head, maybe even these voices that we've heard that have taught us to be suspicious of anything that sounds a little bit too expansive or inclusive or freely given. We've been taught to be afraid of anything that sounds a little bit too much like cheap grace or something like that. In fact, sometimes it's even the heresy police that come after people who begin to preach a little too loudly, a little too plainly about the freely given, no strings attached, unreserved love and forgiveness of God. But this is interesting. Um, I don't know if you have been around the heresy police. Um, There's a lot of them on Twitter. Uh, One of the things that happens with these sort of self-appointed watchdogs and gatekeepers who are sort of monitoring the world and trying to make sure that you don't trust too much in the forgiveness that's too big and expansive, one of the things that happens is like, they will note that Paul has no problem going after false teachers. Paul has no problem getting fierce about it. Those first few sentences that I read to you, like from the letter where he starts to get pretty, like, uh, pretty gnarly, you know, pretty nasty, they'll note that Paul is not afraid to attack heresies and false teachers. And so they'll kind of take that same posture, that same mission and run with it. But the thing they'll miss, watch this, this is really important. Anytime you find Paul defending the gospel against false teachers, anytime in the New Testament you find Paul defending the gospel against false teachers, it seems to be the case that Paul's saying, no, you've got it too narrow. It's bigger than you think. And today the heresy watchdogs usually go the other way around and they say, oh, it's not that big. I'm trying to keep it narrow for you. But they, they miss the fact that it seems to be that like us and our brokenness, and our sin nature, that the thing that we actually end up doing is that we make God too small. It's as if we think somehow that if we could create God in the smallness of our own image, in the withholding of our own image, in the fear of our own image, in the grudge keeping, score keeping nature of our own image, it's like we think that if we could create God in that image, then somehow that God's gonna be better at keeping us holy. Now, I'm all for the idea that like not everything is in bounds. Not every behavior is good. Not every way of treating one another is okay. And there's a lot that we get from Jesus and the rest of the New Testament about the things that are right and wrong for the way that we live our life together. I'm not saying every behavior is in or out. But it's like we think that the smaller God is going to make it easier for live, us to live that way. The, the God who, um, you know, has 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 just barely enough grace for you if you're lucky. Somehow we think that that God is gonna be better able to help us live the life that that God has made us for. But I don't think it's true. I think the small scorekeeping, withholding God can control us, but that God can't change us. I think that God can perhaps manage our behavior for a moment, but that God can't heal us. But it turns out the actual God that Paul met, the one that confronted Paul on that road, is capable of saying simultaneously you've never been more wrong and you've never been more loved. And I've got enough grace and forgiveness to cover all of it for all of you. And the the beauty of it is if you just learn to trust it. So this brings us back to experience. Um, There's a a really phenomenal thinker I recommend, a guy named Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist. And he does his work at the intersection of... uh, Uh, neuroscience, and Christian spiritual formation. And I've taken this line from him. I've already kind of said it. He said, um, you've got to sense it before you can make sense of it. Experience really is how how the soul learns. And so hopefully like a word from scripture can be part of your experience. Hopefully a word from a sermon can be part of your experience, but I don't actually think it's enough. Uh, because just like these writers of scripture, we experience things before we are able to grow into them. And so I would encourage you, if you, if you want to take seriously what Paul is trying to defend for you, if, if you want to lay hold of the precious thing that Paul is fighting for, for you and for me, trust the experiences that you have had when you have known that all is forgiven when you've known that there's grace to cover every bit of you and your life. Um, Maybe you can think back to moments in relationship and I don't know if you've had many of these or few and if you can't think of any, I'm sorry and I know that might be a really painful thing to reckon with but if you can think to any moment in relationship where you have discovered that there was an embrace waiting for you in spite of a failure or a a point of betrayal or a, a letdown that there was an embrace waiting for you, if you can savor that memory and remember what it felt like not just in your feelings but in your body to know that embrace you'll be closer to the thing that paul is trying to call out for us Um, and then here's the other good news if you're having a hard time coming up with those kinds of experiences we've been given today another experience this meal that we call the eucharist And I don't know if this connects deeply for you or for not. I know for some, like, maybe you come forward grateful to be a part of this practice, but maybe it doesn't, like, really connect deeply for you. I understand that. But for others, I know that there are times when we are surprised or we are caught off guard. By the way, that this meal becomes an experience of grace, of reconciliation, of belonging, of God who pursues us. And I love that because... um, If the centerpiece of our practice today was just a sermon, you really are kind of just left with like, do you agree with it or not? But if the centerpiece of our practice is the meal that Jesus gave us, then you could just taste it. And maybe this could be folded into your experience of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of an inexhaustible love of God that has come for you today. Paul seems to think that this was worth fighting for, worth defending, worth protecting with the kind of ferocity of a a papa goose who just knows that he's here to protect these precious lives that depend on him. And Paul seems to think that it's the people of the church that he wants to protect from these lies about the smallness of God. And so uh, it's my privilege now to prepare us uh, for this table. Um, I'm gonna invite those who are gonna serve you to come forward and join me up here. And as they do, I wanna remind you that On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And like, don't miss this, he's there in the room with the person that he knows will betray him. And this same Jesus who has shared with us this expansive reconciling love of God served this meal to the man who would betray him and said even to him, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And later at that same meal, Jesus took the cup And He said this is the promise of a new faithfulness, a love that will never be exhausted. Drink and drink deeply of this love. And so loving God, I pray that these elements would be for us, your life given for us and for the world. I pray that we would taste at this meal reconciliation. I pray that we would taste at this meal your divine embrace. I pray that the love that meets us in this gospel that Paul preached in this uh, good news meal that we are about to partake in, I pray that this good news would go all the way into our hearts. That it would begin to overcome the fear and the shame and the hiding. All of those frail stances that come from this profound fear that in the end what we will run into is the limits of your love rather than the endless nature of it. Uh, So thank you for this strange word that comes to us through our brothers and sisters all those years ago in Rome. I pray that we would taste here today that we too are God's holy people loved by you and forgiven. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
1: All will see how great, how great is our God. Come on, y'all, help me sing.
0: If you're able, will you stand to your feet? A quick reminder after the 11 a.m. gathering, today is our first uh, experimental. Play with uh, the open table, and so that'll be happening up in the mezzanine. There's a lift in the lobby over there. If stairs are a challenge for you, so if you'd like, you can come back for that. Uh, it's kind of a BYO thing—like bring some food for yourself, maybe it's something to share—and uh, you don't have to register ahead of time. But it's just a shared meal and a few questions that will help us uh, enjoy some intentional connection and conversation. So if you'd like to uh, come back for that, around depending on the sermon length, uh, 12, 15, and we'd like to see you up there. That being said, may you know the reconciliation that is yours with God. No matter what you've heard or felt or seen, may you trust what Paul knows, which is that we have been brought to peace with God through Christ. May you sense this not just in your mind, but in your bones, in your body. And may you know that you too, that that your knowledge of this grace is worth so much that it's worth fighting for and defending. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.